Let us pray. Father God, as we come before your word this morning, we know that there's all manner of distractions that could prevent us from hearing and, and listening to your word this morning. Illnesses and, and things going on throughout our lives that might make it difficult for us. And we just pray that your blessing be upon us, that you still are hearts, give us quiet mind, ready to listen to your word this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's interesting to reach chapter 19 of Exodus because in one sense, uh, this is the start of another book in the Bible. If you were going to divide the book of Exodus in half, you would cut between the last verse of chapter 18 and the first verse of chapter 19. And the reason you would do that is because for the first 18 chapters, this has been a rescue story. God rescuing those who cry out to him. God tenderly showing his mercy, this God of salvation, this God of mercy, this God of grace, this God of rescue with the powerful outstretched arms. He has defeated enemy after enemy after enemy for these people. Plagues, hungers and thirsts, armies, great armies that have come up against them, all kinds of redemption so that they might be freed from the suffering and the slavery that ensnared them. It's been an incredible journey through those 18 chapters. And then here at the second part of the book of Exodus, this God in the midst of his people starts to discuss what a relationship with him, what he desires that to look like. And so in many ways, well, this chapter, you could do a sermon series of a great many weeks on this chapter because so many of these themes are going to be seen in later chapters of the book. Primarily today, we're going to focus in on just a few verses here. But... Um, understanding that there has been this shift for the people. Actually, for the remainder of the book, the people will be a stationary people uh, from chapter 19 through to the end of 40. They are for roughly about a year going to be at the base of Mount Sinai. It's a mountain we've talked much about. It's a mountain we've been to in this series, and it's a mountain where the name of it is there's a little bit of a debate, not a significant one, but a little bit of debate where its name derives from. We've talked about that some. We've talked about how in the shadow of this mountain is the wilderness of sin, that maybe sin is where it derives its name. But Sinai is also uh, in the region, a word for jagged or rough uh, stones and rocks. 
But the primary definition for the word Sinai, the one that, for instance, if you were to open up the most popular uh, Christian dictionary, the Strongman's Dictionary, it would give you, it was Augustine. Love this imagery. It was a mountain of thorns. The word Sinai means thorns or thorny mountain. And so the people of God are approaching the presence of God at this mountain of thorns. And in it, in the midst of this mountain, he's going to ask them to consider the nature of their relationship with him. Consider how they might go forward with this God who has rescued them time and time again with the powerful outstretched arms. And so that's really where we start this, in one sense, new book within the book of Exodus. And what is the first thing that God really tells his people that they are going to have to do in order to enter into this relationship he desires with them? We can see it in verse 4. God says to them, basically this, to sum it up in one word, you need to remember. You need to remember the salvation I brought. You need to remember the things that I've done. You need to remember the grace I have given, the mercy I have displayed. If you start with remembering what I have done for you, then that is really the foundational building block to this relationship that I want you to have with me. You know, we live in a day and age in a, in a dying church, quote-unquote, do the, the, the news articles say in America, a dying Christian church. I don't know if I really believe that. I remember a, a conversation I had with Rob as we started this book of the Bible. And he's been in churches, I've been in churches as well, where they've preached through this book. And everyone loves the first 18 chapters. Did you say that, Rob? They like to hear about the God of rescue. And then something happens when we start to read the nature of what our relationship with God looks like. And it is well known in preaching circles that the second half of Exodus can drive people out of the church. Because we love the God of rescue, but when God says, this is what I want our relationship to look like. We all have that little inner God that we love and adore within ourselves that says, who does God think he is to demand that of me? Now, if we remember who he is, we won't want to say that. But also, even if we have the wisdom to see how he begins this second half of the book with what our relationship is to look like now that we have been saved by him, we're going to see that he's tender. He's merciful. 
Now, you think about the slavery these people had with Pharaoh, the bondage they had in Egypt, the Holocaust that they were made to face. They, 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 had, no, they had no option. They were born into that slavery, that, that serpent-headed, wicked Pharaoh who needed to be crushed. He, he desired to just put them in a bondage with no desire of, of, of hearing their thoughts on this or their opinion. Here is God. He has brought these people to the point of salvation, to the point of rescue from the things that they cried out and wanted to be rescued from. And now he's going to ask, would you enter into a more faithful relationship with me? And so we need to be a people who remember. And right after God encourages people to remember what he has done for them, God says to his people in verse 5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. This fifth verse has led a lot of people astray in the history of biblical teaching because there is a condition in it. If you quickly forget what God started by this reminder of remembrance, if you forget about the remembrance that's to motivate the conditional statement, you're going to get this backward. God stated his address with a rescue plan with asking people to remember his grace. He's calling this congregation his people, which he brought to himself on eagle's wings. Think about that. I mean, think about, for instance, we think of Lord of the Ring and Frodo and Sam at their critical hour where, where death seems to be upon them. They're delivered from eagle's wings. They were, they were delivered, not on condition, but... Do you think it changed them in the story arc and, and changed what they did in response to being delivered? That, Tolkien's borrowing biblical imagery there. That's the image that God has for us. He has already plucked, already saved those with ears to hear and eyes to see. This is a covenant. This is a covenant does demand, yes, that it be fulfilled in perfect obedience. But remember, the God who cries out to us on the mountain of thorns and sins, that God wants us to remember before he says anything from that mountain, his greater salvation, to stir up a desire of obedience in us. God did not require the obedience to be rescued from slavery, but because he has rescued us from slavery, he desires us to strive for that kind of obedience. The second half of verse 5 makes clear it's then we are God's treasured possession. And when God asks these things of his people, can we appreciate the following reality? Again, this is better than Pharaoh. Here is a God at Sinai, and he starts with, instead of heavy burdens laid upon them, he says, just remember I've saved you. 
that remember the long pattern of love and salvation that I have displayed to you. Remember, mercy has been shown to you. And God is now saying, I want you to assume the identity I have given to you from before creation ever was established. An identity that reflects my image in the world. Another way to put it, God is asking them, would you stop acting so much like a slave to Egypt and instead start acting like a citizen of my kingdom? And as verse 5 closes, God is basically saying, if you can do that, you're going to look unique in all the world. You're going to look different. This entire earth, you're going to stand out distinctly. I don't know why I'm getting feedback. We learn from verse 6, God will consider us a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And so there are three major developments we've learned after the remembrance on the mountainside. First, we've learned that we are God's treasured possession, which means that we are heavenly property. Here is the amazing thing about God declaring this people his property. Have they really warranted being called his property at this moment? No. If it had been up to them, we know already through the 18 chapters of, of rescue, they would have gone back to Egypt many times. They would have been happy to die under Pharaoh, as they made clear in the first half of this book. But they were God's treasured possession anyways. And so he removed them from the power that ensnared them, flaws and all, warts and all, and they are now his. And as God's possession, he has a purpose for his people. And it's that they become a kingdom of priests. Now, to understand this idea of kingdom of priests, there's a few things we have to make clear. First off, this idea of kingdom of priests will not really be set again and picked up again until the New Testament, until the Gospels, until the Paul, for instance, in Titus, or, or Peter in 1 Peter. It's not going to be really picked up again in the Hebrew Scriptures that we uh, call the Old Testament. But God desires a kingdom of priests. But we can kind of rush in with our assumptions at the moment. When we think of kingdom of priests, we might think of the Levites. But the Levitical priesthood hasn't been established yet. There are no Levitical priests in this moment. Actually, this is one of those things that we, we really, the law has only been written on the hearts of the people until this moment on the mountain. But, and so Israel, the congregation of Israel's identity with the priesthood would have been, they would have known the pagan ideas of priests. We saw one, Jethro, a pagan priest last week, and he became a, a believer by the end of his encounter with Moses. God used Moses in order to sow the seeds of faith. But also, they would have been able to look back at the patriarch. And the patriarchs at times lived their lives in ways where they were set apart, and they were distinct, and they, they did at times 
offer unto the Lord. They had a priestly-like conduct in their life. And, of course, there's that encounter with Melchizedek, who's the priest in which Abraham even worships, Abraham even tithes to. And the book of Hebrews says that actually uh, Jesus comes from the order of the priesthood of Melchizedek. And so they have a, a general idea of priesthood, but they don't have the specific idea of priesthood that's really going to develop for the Old Covenant community. And the important thing about that is we are Protestants. I am not a priest up here. This is not, you know, St. Catherine's uh, Roman Catholic Church or anything like that. We believe in the priesthood of all believers. And we believe in the priesthood of all believers because I'm not the only one in ministry. Pastor Bruce is not the only one in ministry. We're all in ministry. The, the, the coming of the Lord, the salvation that the Lord has granted us is supposed to inspire in us a desire to be ministering servants unto the Lord, set apart and distinct from the world. Uniquely set apart from the world. For instance, what's, what's the great sin that's going to come at, at Mount Sinai? What are they going to worship? Oh, let's hear it. Come on, let's pretend we, we, you know, we're a southern church. Yeah, golden calf, which I think is chapter 20. No, no, it's not chapter 25. It's chapter 25. I got to catch up to my notes. But anyways. Golden calf. Here's what happens at the golden calf situation. And when Moses saw the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. What's, what's that being said there? See, God asked for them to be a kingdom of priests. At the golden calf, there's that word, we don't usually use that word, derision of their enemies. That, that breaks out. Their enemies basically look on that moment of the golden calf and derision is created. In what sense is the word derision being said there in the Hebrew? It's actually laughing stuff. You want to know why it's important to be uh, a part of the kingdom of priests? Do you want to know why it's important for us to, to respond to the salvation of the Lord in faith? You know, at the golden calf ceremony, they, they, they embraced the worship of the world. They embraced the pattern of the world's worship. And they became a laughing stock to their enemies. You know why it's important for us to care about ministering being set apart, being distinct, not following the patterns of the world, a large part of it is it's actually a way in which God uses us in order to expand his kingdom throughout the world. And when we fail to do that as a church, when you think, oh, yeah, yeah, ministry is just something other people do, I just have to show up on, you know, every once in a while, 
whether I'm a creaser, whether I'm a couple of times a month or, or maybe even a, a weeklier. When you, when you fall into that pattern, you're missing the reason why God has saved you and I. He wants us to be a kingdom of priests. He wants us all to be a part of the priesthood of all believers. He wants us to be a people who love and serve him and don't see it as slavery. Don't see it as bondage. We're so thankful for the fact that he has rescued us from the enemy, that we just are changed and transformed. And when we fail to do that, and we do all fail to do that, we become a laughing stock. And our enemies take notice. And so why is the church shrinking in, in America? I think for far too long, it became a laughing stock. For far too long, we didn't want to be set apart. We, we forgot as Protestants the idea of the priesthood of all believers. We forgot about the life-giving word. This is, this is really a second moment of creation in one sense. You know, here we had the first creation in the early chapters of Scripture, and now we have God speaking out his moral order into the world, how he wants us to live and move and have our being. And you can't embrace the God who created all and not love the God who has established a desire for a moral order. And he wants us to be a people who follow his moral order, because when we do that, not only do we reflect more the image that we were originally created to be in, but we are no longer a laughing stock in the midst of the world. This is why the Apostle Peter could write in First Peter chapter 2, verse 9, but you, meaning all who are saved, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Whereas Paul put it in Titus chapter 2, verse 14, Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And so how do we get to get to that point? We got to be a people who remember, who remember how the Lord has saved us, who remember what the Lord desires from us. And, and, in his desire, the greatest exodus he wants from us is not an exodus that can be discovered by following a trail of a map of the world, but it is an exodus from the spiritual darkness and sin we so often fall into ensnared, being ensnared by and being entrapped by. Willingly, far too well. And that's why the Apostle Peter could say in that same chapter, he would say that a faithful life of obedience will make us look like aliens and strangers to the world. You want the church to reform so it looks more like the world? What you're actually saying is, I don't want that kind of relationship with you, God. But God says, no, no. If you're listening to me closely, this is going to make you alien and strange to the world. 
but in being aliens and strangers to the world systems of counterfeit human flourishing, we become no longer strangers to the saving gospel that calls us in, to live in a manner worthy of salvation, the salvation our God so generously gave us. This is, this, this is so key to God's saving work in Scripture that this actually becomes a part of the hymn that is sung to Jesus in the book of Revelation itself, chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And so you want to know what our Lord would treasure in response to his salvation? He would treasure us to desire, to strive, to live in his midst as a kingdom of priests. He would, he would desire us to go through the law, go through these, the, these chapters and not be so convicted of it that we want to flee the church or be so convicted of it that, that uh, we forget to remember he's already saved us, but also just see the beauty in this law so that we desire to place ourselves more faithfully in line with it. And if you can grasp this idea, then you understand this second book within the story of Exodus. Now, there's an interesting moment in verse 8. And some theologians, and I used to be really sympathetic to these to them in the past, than I more so than I am now, love to point out how these people make a vow, technically speaking, that God never really specifically asked for. After they have been read the law, this hearing the moral desire for the people, the people say, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And, and the reality is, first and foremost, the fact that they took that vow is why we need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This vow shows the fact that they're not going to be able to honor him, they, that we're going to actually need a mediator. We're going to need the Messiah. It should have drawn them back to Exodus chapter, I mean, Genesis chapter 3. And remembering that God promised a messianic figure who would save them. And so I used to really get caught up in the fact that, you know, they, they kind of want to save themselves by the law. They want to, they're, they're, they're making a mistaken vow. But the more I live the Christian life, the less I want to be hard on them. Because the more I've had to recognize in my own prayer, desires to be delivered from sins, the desire to, to, to see God's transformative work in my life and in the lives of others, uh, 
the yearning of my heart is is the day that that all these things we shall do. All these things that we shall do. Every one of those laws, all these things we shall do, that's the yearning of my heart. And and I would guess it's the yearning of a lot of your hearts as well. And, And sometimes it can get so discouraging because, yes, in life, there is more of a pattern of unfaithfulness. That story throughout my life than the story of, of profound faithfulness. And so, yes, that's why I rest ultimately in the perfect work of Christ, but also there is this prophetic desire, there's this human desire that is in the spirit-bound individual that we want to go back to be that which we were originally created to be. Who doesn't want to be a part of that? And so I want to go to the mountain of God. And I'm born at that mountain where I see him crowned in thorns. To know that my sins are forgiven, but I also want to be transformed and changed more into his image. And so I can't begrudge these individuals for having that desire as well. And so, well, yes, it's true that these people are pledging here in obedience that they are utterly inadequate to secure for themselves. As, a, as one who is saved by the Lord, I think we can say we don't blame them entirely for desiring this kind of obedience. Actually, that's part of what this passage is trying to tell us, to desire this kind of obedience. To have us say, I want to be like that. As my Lord cries from the mountain for me to, to be so, when he cries from that mountain, and he yearns that for you and me, I want to be like that. And yet God knows these people aren't ready to honor this vow. He makes that as clear as starting as the very next verse, verse 9. God tells Moses, I'm going to come down from heaven upon this mountain in order that people might believe what I've told you, Moses. Think about that. He just made a vow that they're going to honor all these things that God said. But God says, I'm going to have to come down. I'm going to have to come down from heaven in order that these people actually believe this is what I want them to do. That is the inconvenient truth. Even people who have been saved by God struggle to trust in the moral law. We struggle to desire to live in the way God desires us to live. He had to come down from heaven in order to be the God upon the mountain. And if you're following along, you could sooner ask yourselves, am I still speaking of Exodus 19 or am I speaking about the incarnation and the mountain of thorns that he will end up on in his mortal life? When God came down from heaven in order to go to the mountain of thorns, he did it to save us and so that we would love his law and so that we would desire to live out his law and be holy priests in his mint who want to serve him. And yet in returning back to Exodus 19, these people are called to wash themselves in preparation. Actually, this is, 
the first of three times in this brief chapter, God's going to warn these people to be ready for when he comes. Be ready for when he comes by following his instructions. Are you ready? If God were to come down from heaven right now to visit you, are you ready? Are you sure you're ready? If he comes down from heaven this day, or there's a, is there something you need to see greater heavenly purification from? That's not that the washing of these people that they could do with their own hands cleaned every blemish. However, God still wanted them to strive for purity. They, he wanted this community to strive and to pursue purity. And you know what? He still wants the Christian church to this day to do the same. How do many communities fall? Well, there are two ditches to fall upon. The one we're going to focus on today is the ditch where they fail to strive for purity in God's word. And in the face of his law, And the, and the time of this moment, this great moment where the law would become real for these people, upon the mountain of thorns, they were to wait for three days so that this God would make himself more personally known. And the re reality is, actually, in Hebrews chapter 12, it tells us that they were pretty afraid of this moment. These three days actually terrified them. And why shouldn't that? You know, we don't have Katerina here today, right? But think of like the wandering toddler. You're in your tent. If your wandering toddler goes and touches the mountain, they die. Think you're going to sleep well? Three days? Rob would try to be encouraging all the dogs to run on the mountain, all the pet dogs. He's, he's just like that, unfortunately. But we, would, we, we care after our animals. We would watch out. The, they, for three days, they were held in fear. But God would visit after those three days of fear. And they would believe. And then they would desire to be a kingdom of priests. Utterly changed. Because the God who has rescued us hasn't only rescued us, but he's come down from heaven for us and for our salvation upon the mountain of thorns. And he gives us a new life, a new life where we can be in relationship with him and we can desire to grow more faithful. And he calls each and every one of us into ministry with him. And he wants our whole life to be set apart for his sake. And he's, he's not a burdensome leader like Pharaoh was, but he's a loving savior. And that's the beauty of this mountain of thorns. That's the beauty of the presence of God. After three days, who came for his people, in order that pe his people might not only love him as Savior, know that the law has been fulfilled, but know that 
they now have a greater purpose in life. That's why a former Hebrew fisherman named John could later write, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He puts that in the very first chapter of his gospel. Because the truth is, while we can't obey God's law perfectly in this life, he has saved us. He has come from our Savior condescended. He came down from heaven in order to find himself upon a mountain of thorn and sin that he needed to bear. And his coming for us changes us in ways that Moses never could. Because through Christ, his mercy changes us. He rescues us from slavery. And his grace now changes our relationship with the fall. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, as we now a people rescued, still struggling in this wilderness, come to you day in, day out, seeking mercy, seeking daily bread from you. Continue to sustain us, Lord. Sustain us by our remembering the cross, remembering the, the, the Calvary in which you bled upon for our sin and for our salvation. One that we even read about in Psalm 22. Oh, how they scoffed. How evil mocked you. And yet, Lord, help us. Help us to, to be more of a kingdom of priests and less of the kingdom of this world. Help us to be more faithful to you. Continue to transform our hearts to the power of your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us now take a moment. Quiet, try to confess our sin before the